0: Good morning. My name is John. I'm the youth and worship pastor here at the church, and uh, this sermon series that we're going to be starting is uh, one that we've kind of had in mind for. It's probably been about six six months or so that we've really been wanting to do this, and finally we're getting the opportunity to kind of jump in uh, and share some of this with you. So uh, I'm Eric. Talked about the technical difficulties. That's one of them, which is very unfortunate because I had some funny pictures on there I was going to show you guys, and it's not working. So uh, you're just going to have to go with me, and I'll probably call Red up to uh, act out some of the pictures. That'll that'll be helpful. That'll be good. All right, but uh, like I said, we're going to be starting a new series that is taking a look at the last commandment that Jesus gave to his followers before he ascended into heaven, and how that commandment plays out in the church today, which if you think about it, if Jesus said this as his last commandment, his final words uh, as he was ascending into heaven, his last words while he was here on this earth, if Jesus thought this was important enough to say it then, I mean, he could have told his disciples to do anything and they would have done it, but he chose to tell them this thing because he knew the importance that this one command was going to carry. So as Jesus was about to leave this earth, he gave what we call the Great Commission to his disciples and to every Jesus follower from that point on. Uh, It says in Mark 16, 15, I'm going to do this whenever there would have been a slide, so slide. Uh, Mark 16, 15, it says, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. So that's what Jesus said to his disciples as he was ascending into heaven. Now, his disciples, they had a choice Uh, At that moment, they could have uh, gone back and just did what they were doing before Jesus came, or they could have done what Jesus commanded them to do. And uh, they were like, you know, Jesus said that, that's his last thing, we should go do that. But then they're sitting there watching Jesus ascend into heaven, and they're watching him go up and up and up and up. And, and finally, it got to a point where two angels appeared, and they were just like, uh, guys, <laughs> are you going to go to what Jesus said you should do? And they're like, oh, yeah, we should, we should probably do that. And so the disciples did that, and it had great momentum. In the book of Acts, it records the early stages of the church, and we can see in so many places, in 28 different places, in fact, in the book of Acts, it talks about the growth of the church Slide. Uh, Acts 2.41, it says about 3,000 people were added to their number daily. Then Acts 2.47, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, it says the number of men was about 5,000 thousand. Can you imagine that? Like That's just the men. That's not including their wives and their children and the number of households that were there. Can you imagine in one sermon, in like one time, at one night, overnight, the entire city of Gothenburg becomes Jesus followers? That's what they were getting to witness. That's what they were getting to experience. Acts 6.1, it says, their number was multiplying. And then in Acts 9, it says the churches were multiplying. We're, we're a church here at the crossing, one church, multiple locations. We have two locations. Can you imagine if all of a sudden overnight we had four locations <laughs> and then we had eight? And it just kept growing. That's literally what the disciples were getting to witness. And then fast forward 2,000 some years, the command of go into all the world and preach the gospel is the same. Yet we aren't seeing near the same impact that they were and that the early church was. See, the disciples, they heard the command, and they made it their life. And somewhere along the way, we have lost our focus as a church. And here's where I think part of that lost focus comes from. I think that we've tied a relationship with Jesus to just a gathering that happens on a Sunday morning. See, what the disciples made their life and made their life focus. modern-day Jesus followers have made an hour once a week. Think about that. And here's really what I mean by that. Can you imagine if the disciples, you know, they spend all their time with Jesus, all their time following him in his earthly ministry and doing all these different things and seeing all the amazing miracles and things that Jesus did and realizing who Jesus is to them, Can you imagine if their way of following the Great Commission of go and and preach the gospel to all all nations was going up to somebody and saying, hey, five days from now, do you want to come with me uh, to listen to some guy talk about something that you're probably not going to understand anyway, and uh, oh yeah, it's on the one day of the week that you actually get to sleep in because it's at like eight in the morning. Can you imagine if that was the approach the disciples took, was saying, hey, come with me. No, the disciples, they weren't just inviting people to gatherings. They were telling people about their intimate relationship with Jesus. They were telling people about who Jesus was, what Jesus did. Now, hear me out here. I am not saying stop inviting people to come with you on Sunday mornings. If that is what you are hearing from me, Eric will never let me preach again. And after the age comment, he probably won't anyways. But... That is not at all what I'm saying. The thing is, if we solely focus on inviting people to come with us on a Sunday morning, and that is our way of going to all the world and preach the gospel, then I think we've really missed the point of what Jesus was trying to tell us. See, people can go to church and have no idea who Jesus is. People can appear to have their life all together and have no idea who Jesus is, have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. And if we see that someone is going to a church, any church, and we automatically assume that they know Jesus because of that, that is a really dangerous assumption. That's why Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the people that look like they need it. He said, go into the world and preach the gospel to everyone, to the people that go to church, to the people that don't go to church, to the people that wouldn't dare set foot in a church building, to the people that look like they have their life all together, to the people that look like their life is falling apart. Go and share the gospel with them. If our response to Jesus' command is only come and sit with me on a Sunday, then I fear we've really misunderstood the assignment that Jesus has given. We need to talk to people about our relationship with Jesus, tell people about who he is, not just rely on a Sunday morning service to do that. See, here's the thing. Inviting people to come with you is a great way to help share the love of Jesus. But it should not be the only way to share the love of Jesus. But here is kind of the tension that I hear from a lot of different people when it comes to this is, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? Well, what if, what if like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I know enough about Jesus to really talk about him, you know? Or there's this one. I hear this one a lot. Uh, I, I'm not a good enough person to talk about Jesus. Like, the people that I would talk to about Jesus, like, they know some of the stuff I do. I'm not good enough to talk about Jesus. I'm not qualified to tell others about Jesus. And you know what? Those are all valid statements. They really are. But if we're called to do this, should those statements excuse us from what God tells us to do? See, what we're going to talk about today is the way that we can do what Jesus said to do. The way that we can carry out and follow the words, go and preach the gospel. The way that we can take all of our insecurities, all of our worries, all of our doubts, all of our fears, and still do what Jesus calls and tells us to do. And in order to see how that's possible, we need to go back and look at the disciples and what the disciples did. Because I'll remind you about the numbers. There was a thousand added to their number. There was 3,000 added to their number. The number of men was then 5,000. Churches multiplying. Like, that's insane. And I look at that and go, how in the world did they do that? Like, that is incredible. Can you imagine if we experienced that kind of growth overnight? Man, all of the churches in Gothenburg would need, like, five services, and we wouldn't even be close to housing the amount of people. Like, that is insane growth. So, we're going to look at a story here that, that took place in the midst of all of this massive growth, and it gives us the key to how the disciples were able to do what Jesus commanded them to do. So, The story we're going to look at today, Eric actually shared it about a a month ago uh, in one of his sermons, so of course, we all remember exactly this story, I'm sure. That's probably the way it is. And uh, no, not really. We really don't. If you remember that, I'm impressed, because I don't remember what Eric preached about last week. What did he preach about last week? Whoa, somebody (laughs) remember? Eric's in the back like, amen, sister. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Eric, you shared this story before, but what I want to do is I want to look at what took place immediately after this story happened, because what we're told, it unlocks the key in how the disciples were able to do this. And, uh, but actually, before we jump into that text and that story, uh, I want to share with you another text that is possibly going to open your eyes to who the disciples really were. See, and this is where I would have a slide with a picture of the painting of the Last Supper, you know, where Jesus is like... Oh, and then there's the others who are like doing all this weird stuff on the side and everything. And, and, and we look at that picture. Most of you guys know the picture that I'm talking about. And you see uh, paintings of men with like long beards. They got white hair. And it <laughs> I started saying long beards and it's me. Uh, they've got like long beards and, and white hair and everything. And every single one of the disciples in that painting, they all look like men in their probably like 40s, 50s, somewhere in that uh, age range. And and I really think that that painting, not just that painting, but that painting of the disciples has given people a false idea of the ones who really carried out these amazing things that we read about in the book of Acts. See, just, just stick with me here for a second. Hopefully, uh, if you stick with me, this will kind of blow your minds. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, Jesus and his disciples, they left the nation of Galilee and they arrived at a place called Capernaum, and they went to the temple. Now, at this time in history, uh, people had to pay what was called a temple tax in order to enter into the temple. It was to help with the upkeep of the temple and then was later used to help rebuild the temple. And uh, the tax collectors, they came up to Peter and they were like trying to look for something to kind of like, you know, oh, I bet Jesus doesn't pay the temple tax. Let's get him for that because that's something you should do. So they come up to Peter and they're like, hey, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, uh... Yeah? I mean, he went in the temple. He he pays the temple tax. And then later on, Jesus is like, Peter, do kings collect taxes from their sons or from other people? Peter's like, well, I, I suppose they would collect taxes from other people, not their sons. So Jesus says, so the children of God are exempt from paying the temple tax. Jesus is like, I'm the son of God. I don't need to pay anything to go into the temple. Like, that's my house. I don't need to do that. But In verse 27, Jesus says, But so that we don't offend them, go to the lake and throw out a line. Take the first fish that you catch. Open its mouth and you'll find four drachma. Take it to the temple and pay the tax for you and me. Now, the fact that Jesus told Peter to go catch a fish and that exact fish would have the coin in its mouth with with the exact amount that was needed to pay the temple tax for Jesus and Peter... That's pretty phenomenal, but that's that's not what I'm trying to get at here. See, the fish had four drachma in its mouth, four drachma in its mouth. And Jesus said to use it to pay the temple tax for Jesus and Peter. What about the other 11 disciples? Was Jesus like, hey, go catch your own fish. Like, you'll find coins. Like, no, no, like, that's, that's not at all what happened. In Exodus chapter 30, we actually learn that the temple tax is to be paid by men over the age of 20. So let's, let's, let's combine all this information, break it down here, okay? Thirteen people entered the temple. Two paid the temple tax. Eleven did not. People under the age of 20 did not need to pay the temple tax. Therefore, 11 of the 13 disciples were under the age of 20, which means my all-time favorite part about the Bible, Jesus himself was a youth pastor. That's right. That's right. Jesus was a youth pastor. Amen. Can I get an amen? Somebody, please. That's right. Whoo. So, I mean, think about this. Think about those numbers again. A thousand added to their number. 5,000 men, churches multiplying, and Jesus entrusted that into the hands of 11 teenage boys and one grumpy youth sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sitting here wondering how did they do that at youth group on Sundays? I struggled to get students to sit in a circle. How in the world? You're laughing because you know it's true, Rhett. He's there. How in the world did they do that? Are you kidding me? Like, like, Jesus entrusted this into the hands of 11 teens and one adult, and it led to the most rapid, the largest church growth in the history of the church. Put this into context. How many times do we discount students because of their age? Yet that is exactly who Jesus picked to carry out the ministry of the church. I'll tell you, those teenagers, they might not have had it all figured out. In fact, they were teenagers. They did not have it all figured out, even though they probably thought they did, because they were teenagers. But they did have one thing figured out. And that one thing that they had figured out allowed them to do what Jesus asked them to do. And it's the same thing that he asks for us. So so let's jump back into the original text here. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. And so while all of this massive growth was going on and happening, Peter and John, they went to the temple, uh, and outside of the temple, they saw a man who had been lame since birth, which actually is what many of the students say about me, been lame since birth. But hey, you guys got it. Kozad was like, what? No, that's okay. But um, the man, he asks for money from Peter, and, and Peter looks at him and he says, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have... I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man gets up. And he starts walking, and he starts jumping around and praising God, and and all the people, the thousands of people that had walked past this man on a daily basis, they see this guy walking and jumping, and they're like, holy cow, what in the world happened? Like, how did this How did this take place? This guy is like, he was over here lame, now he's walking, jumping, like, what in the world? And they see Peter and John, and they go over to him, and they're like, how? Like, whoa, how did you do that? Like, I've got this cousin who, he's, he's kind of lame too, and so you can help him out, and, and you can do this these different things, and and there's this buzz of excitement because this miracle was just performed, and there's all of these awesome people just crowding around like Peter and John, and they're like, this was amazing. And in the back of the crowd, in the back of the crowd, the priests and the temple guards were standing there. And they're like, these guys show up, and they start talking about Jesus raising from the dead. And all this happens, all this buzz, all this excitement, like, this is, not, this is not right. We got to do something to get this under control. And they just, they just weren't happy. But then, Peter, all of a sudden, stands before the group of people, and he begins to share with them. And this, what he shared, made the religious leader's blood boil. See, so it says in Acts 3 11 through 26, and I'm going to paraphrase the, these 15 verses here. It says, why are you surprised by what God can do? Jesus said who he was, and you and your religious leaders killed him. But God raised him from the dead, and this guy, the lame man, had faith in the name of Jesus, and he was fully healed. And this, this right here, this is where the religious leaders started to get mad. Peter said in Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. To which the leaders are like, um, no, you can't just repent and turn to God. You need to come to the temple. You need to continue to purchase your sacrifices. You need to go through us so that way we can do things. That is how you get forgiveness of sins. You can't just repent and get forgiveness of sins. But here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, there's a verse that talks about how the veil was torn in two. And what that means is the veil was what was used to separate the average, ordinary, everyday people and the presence of God. So the high priest would take Uh, People's sacrifices and go into the presence of God and sacrifice on their behalf. Only the holiest of holy, the best of the best could go in there, not just anybody could walk in. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn into meaning that the presence of God was available to anyone, not just the religious leaders. And the fact that forgiveness of sins was now open to anyone did not make the religious leaders happy because. They were no longer needed to intercede on behalf of people. And when Peter is preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, that doesn't work so well for their system. And so the priests and the temple guard, they came up while Peter and John were speaking, and they arrest them and put them in jail. It was uh, in the evening time, so they couldn't really deal with them now, so they just grab them, throw them in jail, and then they all kind of get together, and they're like, all right, what are we going to do about these guys? Like, they're sitting here preaching, and and, and, like, these guys are awful, like, I can't believe they do this. And while they're sitting there all bundled together, kind of talking about this, all of a sudden... I I I really wish I could see this guy. Like he comes up and he kind of knocks on the door and peeks in and he's like, um, hey, just so you guys know, um, it says in Acts four four, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about five thousand. So, so the, the religious leaders are sitting here, and they're already mad. And then somebody pops in and is like, "Oh yeah, by the way, their number just grew because of what they just said out there." And now they're just like, "Nah, no way. These guys have got to go. We we can't deal with this. These guys, we just gotta get rid of them." And so morning comes, and they summon Peter and John, and they brought them before the elders and the high priests and the high priest's family. So, recap here: Peter former fisherman and current grumpy youth sponsor, and John, a teenage boy, were standing in front of the highest of the high religious leaders. These were the guys who were some of the very few that would go beyond the veil into the holiest of holy and sacrifice on behalf of the people. These were the best of the best, the most religious people. And here we have Peter and John, standing before them. This is one of the first times that they've been formally confronted since Jesus ascended, because usually Jesus would have been the one to handle this confrontation, but now it's up to Peter and John. And it says in Acts 4-7, the religious leaders said, by what power or in what name did you do this? And they point to the man who was lame, who is now healed, And it says in the next verses, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to him, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you, the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene, whom you crucified but who God raised from the dead. You want to know how this man got healed? I'll tell you how this man got healed, Peter replied, by the name of the guy that you killed. But God rose him from the dead. And then he takes it a little bit further for the religious leaders who they would have known the scriptures seeing as that was their job, that was what they were supposed to do. And he says in the next verse, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures, you know, the ones that you apparently know, where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And then, as if throwing a little salt in the wound wasn't bad enough, he takes it another step further, talking to the religious leaders who had been the ones who were acting as a mediator between the people and God, the ones who would control the sacrifices and and take them on behalf of the people, the ones who were benefiting from the current religious system. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. By which we must be saved. He's saying Jesus is the only way. Not the temple. Not the sacrifices. Not living a good life. Not being a good person. Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation. And that church, that crossing, is the message that we need to share with the world. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Not through relationships Not through alcohol, not through addictions, not through living a good life, not through going to church. Salvation is found nowhere else but through Jesus Christ alone. And if you're here today and you're looking for salvation, if you're here today and you've tried everything that the world has to offer and you're just like, I'm getting sick and tired of this, like I'm not finding any fulfillment, I'm not finding peace in my life, I want to challenge you to turn to the one who conquered death. Turn to the one who gave up his life for you, because salvation is found in no one else. And the religious leaders, they were kind of taken aback by what Peter just said, and they were just amazed. And this verse right here, this verse, is the one verse that I want us to focus on today that explains how the disciples were able to do these crazy things, how this group of teenagers and Peter were able to help build a church that over just a short span of time went from 12 to thousands. And not only that, but they were able to help start a movement that we would be experiencing today. It says, The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter. And John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, which that in and of itself is amazing to think about. Like, these teenagers in Peter, they had no special training in the scriptures. They weren't born and raised memorizing the Bible like many of the high priests were. They were probably born in a fishing boat where they spent the majority of their lives. They were just ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill people. And here's the thing to think about. Do you know one of the top reasons that people don't talk about God or Jesus with their friends or coworkers? Do you know what it is? They think they don't know enough. The thought that they don't know enough about Jesus has held back so many people from telling their friends, their coworkers, their families, people who so desperately need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ, and the thought that I don't know enough has kept them from sharing with them. How how did we as a society get to the point that we feel we need to be experts in everything before we can talk about it? If this, is a, if this is a lie that you believe or that you fall into, let me hopefully set you free from this false way of thinking here. I, I want you to just, just hear this. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to not know everything. It's okay. Guess what? None of us are going to know everything there is to know about God until we die and we're in heaven, no matter how much studying we do. It's okay to not know everything. You can still talk about it. And if someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, I don't know why we got told, or somewhere along the line, we were told we can't act like we don't know everything, and so we have to like try and come up with something, or instead we just don't say anything at all. It's okay to say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but let's find out together. It's okay to do that. The disciples, Peter and John, they were ordinary, untrained men. They didn't have all the answers. They were teenagers. They thought they had all the answers. They were teenagers. All the parents in here of teenagers are like, uh-huh, yeah. They thought they did. They probably didn't even think they did. They knew they didn't have all the answers. But guess what? They shared. And look at what God did through ordinary, untrained group of people, they weren't seminary graduates, they weren't Greek scholars, they were people just like you and me. And this is it. This this right here is the key to how they were able to do those crazy things and be used by God in such a phenomenal way. And this right here, this is the key that's available to you and to me. This is how they were used by God. It says at the end of that verse, for the council recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That's it. They weren't men who had memorized the whole Bible. They were men who had been with Jesus. They weren't people who were just really, really, really good at preaching. They were men who had been with Jesus. Jesus. These were average, everyday Joes, yet because they spent time with Jesus, God used them to do extraordinary things. They were recognized as those who had spent time with Jesus. These were guys who knew Jesus on a personal level. They walked with him. They shared their hurts and their doubts with him. They cried with him. They traveled with him. They got to know who Jesus was. When people saw them, they recognized them as men who were with him. Something was different about them that made them stand out simply because of who they associated with. And here's the thing that we so often forget. Many of the disciples at times doubted. They didn't even believe at times. They didn't trust at times. They weren't perfect. But in their doubt, in their disbelief, through their fear, through their insecurity, through their pain, through all the things going on, they still chose to walk with Jesus. To sort through their doubts, to sort through the issues in their life with him. Not on their own. The disciples... And right here, this is it. They let their time spent with Jesus flow out of them to reach others. That is how they were able to do these amazing things and see the number of people trusting Jesus grow by the thousands overnight church crossing. Why are we content with spending an hour each week with Jesus and that's our only time? that we spend with him. And this this isn't meant to be a downer message. This isn't meant to be a message of like, oh man, I need to spend more time with Jesus. You do need to spend more time with Jesus, but here's the thing. If you are here and you are breathing, which as far as I know, everybody's breathing. I really hope everybody's breathing. If you are here and you are still breathing, God has a plan for you. God wants to use you, and just because you haven't lived your life fulfilling that plan for the past 10, 20, 30 years, however long it's been, does not mean that you can't start right now, and God wants to do these amazing things through you. He wants to use you, and so As we just saw, you don't need to be someone who has all the answers. You don't need to be someone who goes to seminary and studies and does all of these things. You don't even need to be an adult. What we need to do is we need to spend time with Jesus so we can be used by Jesus. When we allow Jesus to transform us, he can use us to transform others. And here's something I just want to throw in here. If at any time during this message, God brings someone to your mind, that probably means he wants you to talk with them. That's all I'm going to say with that. But let me explain to you the power of spending time in God's word and power of spending time with Jesus and what it can do for your life. So right now, I want you to think of your town. Think of wherever it is you're from, think of your coworkers, think of your family, your friends, your circle of people that you spend time with, okay? Now, when you're thinking of those people, think of the problems that are represented in that group. Don't elbow them, but think of the problems that are represented there in that group. And I bet if you're thinking about it, there's there's probably some anger issues, I bet there's some anxiety, I bet there's probably some alcoholism, I bet there's probably a lot of porn addiction, I bet there's probably a lot of loneliness, there's a lot of bitterness in relationships, there's a lot of people that just feel stagnant in their life, there's a lot of people that are looking for fulfillment by sleeping around, there are so many people that are just searching. For fulfillment. And a few years back, there's this group called the Center for Bible Engagement. And what they did is, over the span of over 15 years, they polled over 400,000 people between the ages of 8 and 80. And what they were doing is they were looking for the effect that spending time in the Bible had on people in that age range. Okay, and here, here's what they found this is, this is phenomenal. People who read the Bible, one, Day a week, there was no change. Their life was no different than someone who did not follow Jesus. People who read the Bible two days a week, there was no difference. People who read the Bible three days a week, there was a little tiny change. Just a little, little tiny change, but not enough to really do anything about. And then people who spent four days a week reading God's word, listen. Listen to this. Feelings of loneliness went down 30%. Feelings of anger went down 32%. Bitterness in relationships went down 40%. Alcoholism went down 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant, with which so many of us feel, went down 60%. Addictions to pornography went down 61%. Having sex outside of marriage went down 51%. But things didn't just go down. Sharing your faith went up 200%. Discipling others, the very thing that we are called to do by God, went up 230% crossing. These statistics are amazing because they show that when we spend time getting to know the one that we were created to know, all of these feelings of insufficiency and bitterness and anger and rage and searching for fulfillment, all of them go down. And what goes up? What's more likely to happen? What we were created to To do what Jesus said in his final commandment on this earth. Isn't it amazing how when we do what we're supposed to do, we're all of a sudden living how God intended for us to live? It's insane to think about that. Mark 16.15 and Acts 1.8, both of these, they record the final words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. And these two verses, they go hand in hand. One contains a command and one contains a promise. It says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the promise. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Mark 16, 15, it says, then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. It's crossing. There are so many people, maybe even people who are here today sitting here, who are hurting, who are struggling who are searching for fulfillment, who are feeling depressed, who are filled with anger, who are filled with resentment, who are feeling stagnant in their life. And church, we have the solution. We have the cure, we have the answer, and it's Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It says, cast your burdens upon Jesus, for he cares for you. You wanna know who Jesus is? You wanna know what Jesus did? Jesus healed the sick. He rose the people from the grave. He gave sight to the blind. He gave home to the homeless. He gave love to the unlovable. He gives freedom to the prisoner locked in their chains. He gives hope to the hopeless. He gives peace to the anxious. He makes whole the broken. He reaches the unreachable. He fixes the shattered. He holds tight those who are mourning. He gives grace to the undeserving. He frees the captive. He gives purpose to the wandering. And he gave his life for all so that we can have life crossing. That is the Jesus that we need to share with the world that knows nothing about him the one who fulfills their every need. And instead of just taking that to everybody, we need to spend time with that Jesus. Let him fulfill our needs the way that he was designed or designed us to do. We need to spend time with Jesus and then let that time spent with him flow out of us into our coworkers, our families, our friends, our circle of influence. Let it flow out of us into the people who so desperately need to know Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes from him and him alone. We have the answer. We know the answer. Let's take the answer to the world that so desperately needs it, but so often we let fear of not knowing enough keep us from doing what God equipped us to do. See, he gave Jesus' followers the Holy Spirit. He gave us everything that we need to do this. Now, listen here. If you've if you've checked out, if you walked away online, whatever it is, tune back in because I really want you to get this. Because this statement right here, this can change the way that we truly live our lives. God used ordinary, untrained teenagers. To reach thousands, why do we think that he won't use us to reach our neighbors? Crossing, we say we're a church that's on mission to see people meet, follow, and love Jesus, but are we? Or is that just something we say to make ourselves feel better? Do our daily lives reflect that mission? And if you, if you say no to that question, then now's not the time to just be like, oh, no, that's not me. Now is the time to begin. Let's see what it looks like to truly be a church that spends time with Jesus and then lets that time spent with Jesus flow out into our community who so desperately needs Jesus Christ Don't feel guilty because you haven't or you feel like you're not good enough to share Jesus. He has declared us righteous. He has paid our debt in full, and he has equipped us with everything that we need to do this. So let's follow the final words of Jesus, and let's go. Let's go and do what Jesus called us to do. And we can truly be a church that's heart, that's mission, is to see people meet, follow, and love Jesus. That actually takes something and instead of just prints it on a t-shirt and we say, yeah, that's my church. That our lives reflect the fact that we want to see people meet, follow, and love Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear God, just thank you so much that you love us, even though, God, we are insufficient, we are not enough. God, we are not good enough to be loved by you, but you love us anyway. You you paid our debt, God. And despite the way that we choose to live our life, you still love us, and you still want to use us. So God, help us to get to know you, to have a desire to want to spend time with you, And then, God, to let that flow out of us into the people that you have placed in our lives that need to know the salvation that comes from you and you alone. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for using us. And help us, God, to live on mission, to follow the very last words that you said on this earth, and to go. God, just help us to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.